Well, hello everyone, and welcome to what, by my calculations, is episode eight of the Neuromantics, a more or less monthly podcast in which Sophie and I look at some science and look at some literature, some poetry, or some drama, or some short stories, and we see what the two papers or stories we've chosen have to say to each other. This week, we are looking at a fascinating shortish paper by a PhD psychology student from Canada, I think, mm. called Anhedonia to Music and Moo Opioids. Now, that's the kind of title I want for my next novel. <laughs> but um, because titles can't be copyrighted, so I can pinch that. <laughs> and the subtitle is Evidence from the Administration of Naltrexone. And uh, Sophie's going to give a sort of introduction to that in, in just a little bit. I'll just say what the other two things we're looking at or mentioning are going to be. We're looking at a short story by Guy de Maupassant, wonderful 19th century French writer, the protégé of Flaubert, and that's called The Devil. And a lovely poem, which has always been one of my favourite poems, by an American writer, no longer with us, called Amy Clampett, who started writing poetry very late in life, and it's called Babel, aboard the International Hellas Express. So, back to the scientific paper and Sophie. So this is a paper that's looking at the experience of pleasure and enjoyment, specifically in response to music. And there has been a lot more interest in the past few years, particularly in neuroscience, in understanding the, the brain bases of pleasure, partly because you can identify particular brain systems that are involved in this. And there's... a a reward system that involves opioids, which for a while was thought just to be associated with sort of, you know, the, for example, you know, why, why people enjoy opioids for recreational purposes <laughs> is that it's sort of tapping into this, this system, this pleasurable system. It feels nice to take them. And uh, for a while it was thought that um, other things that feel nice, like sex and music, didn't involve this system. And now there's a re there's an increasing interest and in actually perhaps there's, there is a pleasure system and these... You know, people routinely rate music as being one of the top things they find most pleasurable in their lives. So is that, you know, can we find a response to this opioid system in response to music? So what they've done is they've got people to identify pieces of music that they really like, um, that give them the chills, that make them feel it's an intensely pleasurable feeling to listen to them. And they've got them to bring them into the lab and then they've got them both to rate how pleasurable they are to listen to and they've taken what's called EMG measurements. So these are just measurements of muscle activity in your face and they pick up very tiny facial expressions. So they're trying to pick up indications of pleasure. And they find that when you listen to the music that you like relative to neutral music that you don't really care about, you can see people rate this as more enjoyable and they are showing these kind of emotional responses in their facial movements. And then the interesting part is they then manipulate this with what's called, uh, it's a drug called naltrexone. Now, you may have come across this if you've ever been in the unfortunate situation of having a, an overdose of an opioid like morphine to, to save your life. They will administer this drug because it's what's called an antagonist. And this means that it's, it has, it's a drug that's working in the opposite direction to the morphine, which will kill you very quickly if you have an overdose. And what it's doing is it's sitting on the on the receptors in the new in, in these yeah. sort of synapses and it's blocking uptake of that drug that's the mechanism so that works to save your life if you've had an overdose and if you take this drug when you haven't had an overdose it will still do the same thing but now the the opioids that it's working against are the body's naturally circulating 
opioids. So, um, you know, if you've ever heard of somebody talk, saying they've got an endorphin high, that's actually your body's natural painkillers, the body's natural opioids. And when you do something like exercise and you get this up, increased uptake in the naturally circulating endorphins and that gives you that pleasant sensation. So can you block that pleasant sensation? Can you stop people enjoying the music and can by administering And can you thereby indicate that there is something, that music has a strong relation to a, sort of to a neurochemical system in the body? Yes, and this is, there's a, the really big picture behind this is uh, increasing interest in neuroscience in understanding pleasure and reward. And reward meaning, you know, if you, if, you got a, if you get a kick from gambling or if you get a kick from uh, a habit fulfilled, like, you know, a, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of things, drinking, smoking, eating, is actually more of a habit than anything else. And the idea is one of the reasons why these habits are maintained is it's rewarding to do something you were expecting. Yeah. So you're tapping into that pleasure system that way. What the paper seems to be doing in one critical paragraph, I think, you know, about two-thirds of the way through in the discussion section, is it saying that the this reward system of which music forms a part is to be understood at a very bodily level. It is like sex and eating food. It's a material activity and it has very demonstrative consequences. It supports you, it nourishes you... It gives you not just pleasure, but the pleasure is specifically allied to a really necessary intrinsic function in yeah. life, reproduction, survival. And that it's thought that, you know, I think, as we've mentioned before in this programme, music might come out of that. It might be to do either with making, you know, noise so that you scare things off, or it might also be something exultant to let people know that you are available, you're in top form, you're possibly a potential partner, or that you simply belong to the group. Mm. You belong to this group of people who are doing well in whatever kind of tribal setup they're in. I mean, I think that the thing that I really took away from it was two things. I, I found that persuasive, but I, I thought that in terms of the paper, it was quite a leap to go from saying you administer this drug and you can then depress sort of, you know, pleasure taking in music. And from that, we infer that music has a relationship to a sort of, you know, physical chemical system of reward. And this is very, very important. And it has possibly these previous, um, you know, evolutionary functions, but they don't really say what those functions are. Mm. And they do it rather quickly in the paper. And it does seem to me to be a very important part of the argument. I, I think that's fair. And I think, um, I mean, I think it's probably notable that the senior author, Dan Levitin, is originally a music psychologist. Mm. And I think one of the problem is the wrong phrase but if you are a, a musician and a scientist that you tend to see this it's very hard to think that, not, that not everyone could feel this way about yeah. this thing I love it's literally a bias actually um if you know it, it, it it's it I think sometimes actually not here I think especially but you can sometimes think you see it leading people into interpretations of data that are probably probably incorrect they make the point very well that from from the majority of people it is one of the most highly rated mm. things people People, you know, people truly do love music. Although it has to be said, not everybody. There's, I did a thing recently with some people who experience 
anhedonia to music, which is just doesn't sound like anything. They get no pleasure from it, yeah. no enjoyment, cannot see what the fuss is all about. So clearly there's a spectrum. Were they sociopaths? No, they well they get pleasure <laughs> from other things. It was so interesting. It was a Radio 3 programme. But they are in the minority. They were in the minority. And, I mean, one woman who was explaining very clearly how music really meant absolutely nothing to her, and and she had no ear for music, she couldn't sing in pitch, and she was talking with this beautifully modulated voice, with wonderful, uh, you know, the pitch and melody of voices, that is always there when people talk. She was using it. Well, she wasn't talking like this. I thought, there is something else to know about this, because she's clearly... She's able to speak. She's able to speak in a way that's using music in entirely the normal way that we do when we're speaking. So there was something else to find out about this. I mean, the, the, it, that, that is interesting. I, but I think the, the question of who takes pleasure in music and in what way and at what stage, what the circumstances are, is really fascinating because those people you're talking about aren't taking pleasure in it because it's not their idea of a good time hobby. It's, it's not yeah. something they want to go and hear. Now, in a con- completely different way, and this is something that the, the paper, you could, as it were, write a sort of adjunct paper which would go into this, but making of music is rather different simply to receiving it passively. Mm. And in a little chat that Sophie and I were having just before we, we came on air, we sort of we were reflecting on the fact that the idea of simply buying recorded music or listening to it onto the radio and not having anything to do with the making in the moment is really quite a relative relatively new idea. Certainly, you know, for for most church music, um, ensemble music, chamber music symphony music, salon music of the 19th century. It's all about being in the room at the time. And really, the virtuoso musicians at the front get one kind of pleasure out of it and the audience get another kind, but they are there together at the same time. It's a sort of live, shared experience. And sometimes you're doing it along... And sometimes you're singing, yeah. Relatively recently, you know, in, in terms of history, it was when sheet music sort of fell off and pop music became where the money was. I can still remember when I was a teenager, because I'm that old, you go to the record shop in Blackburn and there would be the record section and there would be the, quite a large sheet music section, I which totally was still doing a lot, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, you know, the risk of being, oh, when I was a kid, you don't know you're born sort of thing. But my father was a singer, his father was a singer, and we had no way of playing music in our house other than instruments and voices, because it would have, he felt, he would have found, it, he found it quite strange that you would listen to recorded music. It's a, that generation was still, you could encounter people for whom music was entirely a live thing. It's quite recent that it's flipped. Well, it, uh, not not simply a live thing, but a thing that's transmitted in the memory yeah. through being done and performed and and handed down. I mean, the essence of folk music, it seems to me, is precisely that it's not. You know, it's not composed mm. in the way we think of sort of art music, nor is it a sort of popular music confection in a studio. It is something that can only really come out of the community and the group and is only really transmitted by being done, by being shared, by being, you yeah. know, um, sung at festival times. So all, you know, all early... Well, actually, a lot of early English lyric poetry is all folk music because it's mm. carols. Mm. You know, they were in, the, in the 15th century, it's all carols and they're, and they're all sung. And certainly, I think folk music, you could make the argument that folk music up to the kind of big, you know, the famous sort of collectors of it in the 20th century, like Cecil Sharp and, and in Hungary, you know, um, Bartok and, and Kodai. It, it was exclusively a kind of oral transmission, mm. really. That it was, wasn't written down at all. So, 
the doing, the knowing, and the listening were all one. Yeah. But you, but then there is something a bit, and maybe this is something about technology actually, because there's a certain amount of anhedonia, I think, for professional musicians now, where they have to just go and do session work, you know, and they have to. I mean, they yes, they love it, and they'll talk a good talk on the radio about there's nothing, there's nothing like doing, you know, the music. It's why I still love it after all these years. But actually, the process is a is a, is quite a lot of slog, and sometimes, sometimes the people who are doing it are doing it slightly on autopilot, mm. you know, and there's not so much pleasure in it for them as there is at other times. And it's certainly, if you think about the pleasure as well, I mean, they make the point in the paper that music is an absolutely human universal phenomenon. And when again, when you take a step back, still in most parts of the world, it's something that you do live and you, everybody's doing it. And you're, it's a completely, it's, it's, it's fulfilling that role absolutely of being a live experience and being an entirely communal one. So it's great. I mean, I'm delighted. I came here. I'm looking at the headphones I wore when I was walking here so I could listen to music. I listen to music all the time. But that's, it's one brand of musical experience and that's what they're looking at here. And I think that is interesting when you look at their data because they do find that there's, there's a cost to having this opioid antagonist in your system you are not getting the same mm. bang for your buck when you hear the music that you like however if you ask people how pleasurable you are finding the music they are still finding the music much much more pleasurable whether or not they're taking the drug compared to the neutral music it's that's an order of magnitude larger that's and that that brings us back to that i remember someone talking to me about various sort of quite legitimate experiments in your hypnosis where this whole problem of reporting what you find. People would say under some sort of induced state, you know, they would appear not to feel pain mm. when they were sort of given various stimuli, hand in ice cold water. They've actually kind of asked then what they're feeling. They say, no, this hurts quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> Even though they're not manifesting that, you know, verbally yeah. or with any other kind of, you know, yeah. facial distortions. So that's quite interesting that maybe. Maybe the opioid is depressing the capacity to articulate, report, mm. reflect on an experience you're still actually having at some level. Yeah, I think also it might be, it's possible that not the only aspect that is pleasurable about hearing music that you really like is because of a recruitment of this kind of, I'm, I'm being rewarded for this positive experience, mm. that there's a strong sense of all these other things that lean into why you like music. You know, if I if I can listen to a tune um, that I like, part you know, part of it will undoubtedly be the music itself and the, the sound of it, but a huge slab of it will be the other stuff I remember around that, like hearing it on a radio. I can or my, my bedroom when I was fourteen, and the other you know the the, the kind of contextual information that brings back and the social stuff and the well, other people that liked it. Well, they talk about this at one point yeah. and they, they say that actually there's, it's the, the notion of exactly what the pleasure is needs a little bit of unpacking because mm. some of it is anticipatory, as they call it, and some of it is to do with consumption mm. of the sound. But actually it seemed to me that... And then they say the two things are kind of quite locked together because, because the pleasure unfolds as the music happens, as you're making it or listening to it. And I think that's quite an important thing about learning because a lot of pleasure to do with music seems to me to do with repetition. There's something... Hearing call, again. The, they call it the familiarity effect, the mere familiarity, just knowing something better 
you will like it more. But it's locked. But the it's, interesting thing is, it's totally locked into making music. That yeah, because when because there is no way of, you know, you can't learn an instrument from a book. You can't learn it from being told about it. You have to do it again and again. And when you go and do, you know, not just exams, but if you're in a band and you're, you know, you're learning a new standard or something and, you know, you, you run it through and it's you give it some legs, you make sure it sort of stands up. You say, right, let's do it again, you know, because we, we went wrong in the bridge passage and then it kind of fell apart. I want to have another go at that. So you do it again. Similarly, if you're asked to kind of sing back a melody, one of the things you do in learning counterpoint in sort of art music is you have to listen several times over to the same thing. Mm. And then you get more, you know, you get more practiced at sort of replicating it. But you never exactly replicate it because the whole point about doing that is that you learn how to vary it. Yeah. That's how you get air and variations. You do sometimes see it coming to pieces and just on the sort of familiarity side of things. So I can think of records I quite, I don't dislike listening now, that would have driven me to distraction when I was a teenager, like the worst thing on earth. I'm sorry, world, I did not like Michael Jackson when I was a teenager. And now I don't, wouldn't go as far as to say I like it, but I don't find it unpleasant to listen to. And I'm not, I'm not actually running away to avoid listening. And... That's almost certainly just straight down the line familiarity. Yeah. And also the removal of the social baggage I was bringing along. Like, I don't understand what, anything of what's going on here. None of my friends like this music, so I'm out, which yes. was also contributing to my reaction in the first place. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if all of this collapses down onto pleasure. Well, partly I was going to ask you, do you think what we're calling pleasure is sort of rather a you know, rather modern and contemporary way of thinking about it. I was just as we were talking then thinking, well, is this more to do with ritual, really? You know, that actually, because we take pleasure, you, you, you sing the blues, you, you like and you need and you want to sing at a funeral. Similarly, you know, the blues comes out of slave song and it comes out of enormous personal and group racial trauma. And it is is part of bearing witness to that, knowing mm. that what you've individually suffered is recognised by a group and getting through it. And the whole kind of roots of rock and roll guitar playing style in, you know, via Sister Rebecca Thorpe, that kind of, you know, she, she She's was great. She, she was directly coming out of church music. Totally, yeah. So that's a, a form of guitar playing that was kind of starting in a gospel environment. And... Now, have you seen I, that video of her at the train station? Just unbelievable, unbelievable. It's fantastic. Just serving it. She was amazing. Yeah. And she died completely unknown because that, that kind of, for a few reasons, it's not people's link to rock and roll. It doesn't seem to be what it's a middle aged woman who's strongly religious it's somehow making that sound. Yeah. Um, but that, that is the link. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a joyous and it's a religious experience for her. And it's kind of mutated and changed into the sense of it's lost a lot of that. Origins, but it's still the same thing a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's true. So I think we're going to come back to pleasure, but just suppose the last point I'd make on that is that that kind of cultural framing of music still feeds into it. I mean, there's a really beautiful book called Why Why Other People's Musical Taste Is Awful. So I think I might have paraphrased it somewhat. <laughs> and it starts the point. The starting point is all about how this guy absolutely hates My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion and then he really takes it to pieces and it's very because he makes the point right at the top it's an aspirational thing 
you like any form of art there are some things that you want to be more aligned with because that fits your well, cultural um, and social world a friend of mine on twi- on twitter today said to me is there is there a technical word for um fear of christmas songs and i said taste <laughs> um, but we, i was only half joking really that's exactly the point is yeah. that you the whole history of taste in the 18th century is is about exactly what you just said who is aligned with your sort of cultural specification mm. and why so it's to do with class and it's yeah. to do with money really you know and it still largely is it's a it's not well, certainly in popular music it is i can i can certainly remember desperately trying to like i think it was a birthday party because all my friends did i just could not get on with them but i really wanted to because everything else about my life said this should be something that you like and i'm i'm still very vulnerable to people who, oh do you like this new band and i'm like well i like you i'll probably like the band i'm that simple <laughs> i know so, then, then you're in trouble when you don't like it and you have to somehow kind of oh, yes. retrofit what you really think to <laughs> oh, their expectations it's got a good beat to it hasn't it So we've said a little bit about the whole business of making music and experiencing pleasure both as a sort of executant and as a, and as a listener and how the two things were pretty close together in the past. And we've just mentioned expectation. And so that the poem mm. that I chose is, it's not about music, but it is actually about Babel and sound. It's called Babel Aboard the Hellas International Express. And it's about a journey on this train that used to go from Athens up through northern Greece, then through the whole of Yugoslavia, then Austria and Germany, it would wind up in Cologne. And it took a very, very long time. It took about three days. <laughs> and there was never any food on it. I, I did this journey in 1987 from um, uh, Thessaloniki to Cologne, and it was one of the most sordid experiences of my life. So when I read this poem, I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. Mm. You have to take your own food and you have to make it last. And then you find out that there's some illegal distillery on the train, you know, about... It's an endlessly long train, it's about 15 carriages. There's no buffet, but there's an illegal distillery. And so everyone's there getting completely slaughtered. And they come back to your... The author of this poem has a couchette. We didn't. We just sat up all night in a sort of compartment. And they're completely sort of slaughtered. And they come in, throw up everywhere. And you have to kind of sit there in this swill... No, sorry, ah. listeners, but it's for the next two days. Uh, and meanwhile, there are about sort of ten different languages going on because you, you know, there, there are people from so many. This is before the breakup of Yugoslavia, so yeah. you know there are Slovenes and Croats, and uh, it, it, it is. She's absolutely right. It's a sort of Babel, and your expectation, your reward, <laughs> psychology there, is absolutely fixed to that thing I was saying about music. Survival. Yeah. Am I going to... This is a sort of rite of passage, literally, that I've got to get through in order to come out the other end. Yeah. Shall I read a tiny bit of it? Please do. I loved it. So there's a man who comes on the train at the start with these huge buckets of yoghurt, which are his food, and they sort of get kicked over on day two. His untouched yoghurt has begun to spill. A mess. The washrooms are by now a costive-making, hopeless cauchemar. The Serbs, Slovenes, Croatians, Bosnians, Albanians, who knows what else, who swarm the corridors, are civil, appeal to reason, persist, at last prevail. 
Stout, ruddy woman, lean, fair-haired, ruddy man, two small, dark nondescripts, one human barrel, chalk-striped tailored, curly, brilliantined, Lech Valenza, mustachioed, jovial. With these till Munich, we're to share what space there is. They speak some common dialect, we're not sure which. A bag of prunes is passed. We offer olives. The conversation grows expansive. We listen in on every syllable, uncomprehending, entranced. A bottle circulates. I hesitate, see what it is and sip. Stupendous! Not to be missed, this brew. It burns, it blazes. Anecdote evolves, extends, achieves a high adagio, grows confidential, ends in guffaws. Oh, for a muse of Slivovitz, that fiery booze, to celebrate this Babel, this untranslatable divertimento all the way to Munich, aboard a filthy train that's four hours late. <laughs> and it's great, isn't it? It's interesting yeah. that she uses all those musical terms, you know, the adagio yeah. and the divertimento, to describe that sense of sort of chaotic confinement. Yeah, some structure of playing out over days rather than yeah. minutes. Yeah. I liked the the kind of emotional tone shifting because it's so grim at the start and the passport gets taken and there's conspiracy and then it turns up and in fact it was never lost and <laughs> sort of that does, yeah. that happens on that train when you went when you used to go over the the border from um, Greece to Yugoslavia your your stuff would just be it, they just used to come along and take everything take all your passport and it would they go off to some sort of you know hut across mm. the way the train had stopped. And they'd so you'd see them pouring them all out on a desk and sort of having a fag and yeah. sort of moving them yeah. around. And then you'd have to go and fetch them, and you just thought, <gasps> "What even is this?" Yes, yeah. yes. And then the the kind of um, I know it's really naff, but there is something very beautiful about human ability to find some kind of connection or form Completely. a group, and the the things that can be working against that no common language horrible situation but actually that somehow the desire to make a contact to have a connection to communicate in some way starts to well we're going to communicate with our prunes and our olives we'll and communicate actually, with it, our booze and, and our it actually laughter. starts to order sound mm. i mean i think it was vaughan williams who said you know music is a way of sort of trying to sort of gain access to ultimate realities mm. uh, by the means of ordered sound. Yeah. That was his definition. And she says exactly that, absolutely hanging on to a syllable here, a high noise there, a guffaw. Mm. And so the desire to communicate becomes the means of finding order. Mm. You know, the thing that it is possibly from some exterior point of view still cacophonous suddenly has meaning yeah and because the meaning has been brought to it yeah and i think that's very interesting because it tells us quite a lot about the flaws in the argument that there's this thing called you know pleasurable music and and neutral music in the paper mm. I mean, one of the things i didn't quite it was very very interesting that in order to get at music that is supposedly neutral that doesn't cause any hedonic response, they actually had to con confect something that sounded like a... not really like music. Yeah. It's, it was a sort of computer-generated series of, I'm, I guess, clichés, yeah. musical clichés. And, and that's quite difficult to produce 
from a live person mm. because music comes out of the body one way or another. I think one of the things that you that it's also true about this is that and, and to be fair so the entire literature takes this on the chin but you tell people bring the tunes with you tell me in advance what you want because we have no way of predicting this mm. this you will like this song i know what will give you musical chills so it's we t- we we don't really have a theory of why that tune might do it for you and that tune doesn't yeah. we we have no we can have some sort of postdoc interpretation of that one song Nothing that would give us any sort of prediction which, of it. But 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 then but that means you then have to ask yourself in which case, if the pleasurable component is so personal, you know, how can you possibly come up with a sort of neutrality that speaks to the whole group? It's well, I difficult. guess yeah, I mean it is really difficult. You end up with people doing things like this, a kind of you know, trying to just not even really trying to have a music as a baseline, just some sort of you know, simulcrum. Because you need something as a comparison. Yeah. And you yeah, need, yeah. if possible, given that they're all listening to different songs. I mean... I mean, it, I respected the idea. Yeah, I just wondered yeah. how they'd done it. We scanned a, a composer, the composer David Arnold, of a year or so ago. And we did it by asking... Oh, the Bond movie guy. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was really interesting because he just listed out all these songs that were definitely absolutely loved. And my colleague, Fred Dick, oh, God, I think his partner selected sort of really insipid dance music that having listened to all the music David Arnold said he really liked, he then just to what he thought would sound like the opposite. And it worked beautifully. He didn't like any of it. And all we needed was a comparison. We just needed a comparison. So we're not really making any claim about that neutral music. It wasn't even neutral music. It was just our best guess at something he wouldn't like. And he didn't know it. And it wasn't like the music that he did say he liked. And it worked for that comparison. But it was still making, you know, we've just got two different sets of aesthetic decision making there you know there's yeah. no yeah, there's yeah. no scientific for all i know you could probably find someone who's going yes and dancing away to what we thought was the pretty awful stuff it's a very interesting problem when you get to you know and it's something i've confronted myself for example we have exactly the same difficulty in saying why do you find that funny and someone else finds something that as funny as a cry mm. for help you know mm. what is going on there we can interpret general rules and and interrogate the consequences of the experience we have very few ways of making any guesses mm. what actually might predict it. But I suppose also partly because people change their minds, don't they, as they go yes. along with things. Yes. Some, something you start off liking isn't necessarily something you like by the end of the song mm. uh, uh, or, or the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that must be one of the real problems with this sort of experimental psychology is that you are... And indeed, it's a problem with the way we talk about, I think, artistic experiences. You know, I like this book. I don't like that book. I don't want to go and see them because I don't like them. You know, oh, I didn't like it. None of that really. It's interestingly reductive way of talking about what really goes on when we listen to something or when we're at, at a concert, which is that... Our, if you think of the sort of response, let's not call it purely pleasure for a moment, but you think of our responses as a graph and sort of pleasure is somewhere up here and sort of sadness is somewhere down here. It's, it's probably doing that quite a lot of the mm. time. So in other words, the notion of a, of, a ple- of, a, of a pleasure response is the sort of mean level that yeah. goes through it. You can put that down on paper and, and then say, I liked something, but it doesn't really describe the evolution of emotions as your listening or making a bit of music 
And certainly you can, and I know there's individual variation in this, but I mean, for me, I will, <laughs> I have, I know exactly what they mean with music that gives you chills, but I also, there's music I will specifically use if I want to motivate myself to do something. Like a very different set of tunes and I will make a point of listening to them if I'm trying to plan something and wish I hope to be successful. And it's a, it's a totally different emotion. It's not an unpleasant one, but it's like a, yes, yeah. you know, kind of really get yourself going kind of music. I think one of the reasons why people focus in on this very, kind of thrilling, pleasurable, chills response people do get to music is because that seems to be directly analogous to some of these, you know, these other pleasurable classes like sex and drugs. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the only emotional state that's associated with music. And I think what we don't really know is, well, are they all just rewarding? Or is it, because they do feel quite different, or, or that kind of... That you were saying the complexity of a piece of music that might actually be generating extremely sad emotions but still be intensely pleasurable mm. to listen to. Or might require quite a lot of thinking effort yes. to get into. Yeah. The slightly callow but, you know, I think still very prevalent feeling about a lot of modernism and postmodernist work is that it's it's too difficult or that it's difficult and um, you know, rebarbatively so. Mm. So it, it, it's off-putting. It doesn't deliver a, a hit of pleasure. But, of course, the reason, actually, it's quite difficult is because difficulty is quite pleasurable, mm. you know, for, for, for many people. And I don't mean just, you know, bodsu working you know, people who are sort of pseudo-intellectuals. I mean, I think that the truth is that if you ask people what they remember about, you know, some sort of box set series on, on, on Netflix, often you don't get much back from them you get a sort of little bit mm. and and then there's a they, somewhere along the line there's a sort of admission oh it's quite forgettable really i i, I you know, it's, <laughs> i don't know why i like it i just did then ask them about something that they didn't say they didn't like mm. and you often get a rather more detailed response yeah i just always think that's interesting because it's counterintuitive isn't it the thing that is has the label didn't like it, yeah. not pleasurable, is the thing that seems to have got its hooks into people. And maybe I've said this before, but it, maybe it's a bugbear of mine. But I, I, the poem, in a way, describes this, doesn't it? That you, you start off with something that's objectively quite difficult to handle, mm. cramped quarters, um, you don't understand what anyone's going on about, you know, it's unclean, train's late. And actually, all those things then become markers of an intense and inexplicable and unexpected pleasure by the end. Yeah, So the whole poem describes, if you can sort of make it through the the poem, and it's not actually an easy poem in many ways because there's all sorts of sort of run-on lines and the verses aren't obviously verses actually and the the rhymes are, they're all sort of para rhymes and they're a bit disguised. They're there, but they're not obvious. Mm. But you still end up with this fantastic sort of exultant oh for a muse of sliver of it yeah 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 (laughs) which is like a sort of drinking song it's turned into a drinking song and they're sort of charging their glasses at the end i think it's a lovely kind of about face but maybe that's what we mean about you know the 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 reward system is that it's precisely that your pleasure rewards an experience that isn't necessarily pleasurable
it would be very interesting to kind of dig more into this, and I suspect that we might need to. You know, I've, I've got some other papers on this topic that I don't know if you would agree with as much, but the idea that you could have, you could reduce things to rewards in a simple way. Mm. I, I sometimes feel, I mean, I, which I'm not saying is what you're doing. I think the papers do, mm, yeah, and it becomes do. quite yeah. uncomplicated as a mechanism. Mm. Now that's because we're still looking for basic mechanisms. Yeah. No, I think that to is describe a behavior, and I think, yeah. it, but it would be lovely to think that it could be useful for understanding that kind of experience. I, that would be wonderful. That would be great. I would be delighted if that turned out to be the case. I mean, I mentioned at the start that the, the, the important paragraph that they they don't. They they drop in and it's rather lovely, but they don't really explain it. I wonder if I could read it out because it's just it seems to me to be quite important. Yeah, here we've provided evidence for the naltrexone induced anhedonia hypothesis, and thus evidence that musical pleasure is mediated by the brain's endogenous opioid system, that inbuilt opioid system. The fact that music listening triggers a well-defined neurochemical response suggests an evolutionary origin for music, although one must be cautious and not overinterpret these results. It is also possible that music has developed to exploit an already existing reward system that evolved for other purposes, mm. so that it's taken over something that was, you know, I don't want to use sort of the wrong terms, but more primal in a way, um, such as recognising responding appropriately to various human and animal vocalisations. Yes, and I suppose the the only thing I would quibble with there is that you're making the assumption they're making the assumption that those vocalizations aren't music, and of course yeah, they exactly. are. Yeah, exactly. That's the that's exactly that's what the I link. thought. Yeah. I thought well, yeah. I, I don't quite see the because you know music is it, it, it's a, and we may have said this before it definitely communicates. It's frictive in its vocalization, and it's it doesn't take too much thinking about it to see that it's not obviously language, mm. but it has meaning and it's got its suckers into tool making yeah. and okay. opposable thumbs and yep. dexterity and climbing and there is as much dexterousness that goes into producing music in your voice as there is in anything humans yeah. have ever done with their hands yeah. it's just you can't because it's happening at your rib cage and at the back yeah. of your throat you we can see very little of that and we don't realize mm. the, the the actual sheer level of complexity that's driven this and it's very easy to uh, and resource I'll, I'll talk about this all day too. but exactly yeah, and resource uh, management which is actually what the poem ends up with yes. I mean, very very literally yes. they start sharing prunes and olives we're using our yeah. air in the same yeah. way exactly yeah. exactly I think that's fascinating shall we say a little bit about Guy de Maupassant? oh yes please okay so this is it's one of my it's not his best-known short story, but I think it's an absolute winner. It's terribly funny. Yes. Um, very, very bleak. People sort of often complain that, that Guy de Maupassant isn't, isn't as sort of psychologically interesting as his great teacher and mentor, um, Flaubert. But I'm not sure that's true. The, the, this is a translation. The translation is by um, Roger Cully, Um it's probably Roger Collett, and I've just sort of Frenchified him for no very good reason. Very nicely done. And the story is about a peasant woman in Normandy who is about to die, and her son, they're dirt, literally, you know, they're dirt poor. Um, he's got to get the harvest in. They live in this kind of falling apart sort of ramshackle cottage. Uh, he's got a few days of this fine weather to get in the harvest. Meanwhile, she's about to die. Does he stay with her? until she dies 
or does he get the harvest in? That's the start. And it's it's to do with money, but it's all to do with propriety. And the doctor is appalled that he's thinking of going to work when his mother is about to die. So he says, get Mother Rapid in to watch over her while you're doing the harvest, while you're sort of threshing, and then she can let you know if your mother's about to die. And he doesn't really want to do this because, of course, Mother Rapid is going to cost money and that's what he hasn't got. Anyway, he comes, he strikes a deal with Mother Rapid. It's beautifully done because there's this standoff between them. He just wants a fixed price. <laughs> but Mother Rapid is not sure about this because the old lady could hang on. She's just not really obviously dying. She's just sort of, you know, inert and breathing shallowly, but she's not she's not actually on her last legs. So what if she asks for this fixed price and then she's sort of on duty for two weeks? And she comes up with this idea. While the sun is out getting the the corn in <laughs> she she you know, she's two days in, the old woman has not died. And so she says to her have you seen the devil yet? And this very ill lady sort of manages to sort of indicate that she hasn't yet. And Nurse Rabbit says, well, people who are about to die see the devil. And then she goes and the devil appears to them and has a <laughs> cooking pot on his head and a broom in his hand. And then she goes and puts a cooking pot on her head and finds a broom, stands on a chair and frightens the old woman to death. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like a big shaggy dog story, except there is this sort of wonderful payoff. It was lovely. It was psychologically very believable. You could, I loved how it went from as soon as the peasant proposed that they do the fixed price and they haggle the price down less than Mother Rapid wants. But then it becomes more of a competition about who's going to win because now one person is going to win. One person is going to either pay too much or not get paid enough for the time. And um, they just start waiting. So there's, there's a bit where the peasant is like, oh, she's much better this morning. <laughs> How lovely to see you. Thank you for coming by. I think she's picking up. <laughs> it's so good. But also this lovely thing of the way that actually she does this terrible thing. She frightens this woman to death. And then... She goes through with all the kind of sort of rituals that you would do with a dead person, with, with great kind of sanctimony. Yeah. You know, sort of washing the body, saying the prayers. It, and that, I thought that was interesting. So, it because it, it comes back to this business of being able to do a ritual yeah. thing without necessarily having any feeling attached to it. Yes. You just do it almost sort of automatically. It's like an abstract thing. This is what we do. This is what we do. Yeah. I was reading an article, a, a friend of mine who moved to San Francisco, and I was like, ha ha, you'll become polyamorous. And she's like, no. And she immediately became polyamorous, so instantly joined. I, I think a polycule that's somehow spreading over <laughs> probably two thirds of San Francisco. That, and it's difficult to manage these things. There's a lot of resources online and they are so strict. This is what you must do. This is what you must do. It's like, um, on one hand... Like people absolutely, well, you know, let's try a different way of managing relationships. Mm. There's also this absolute desire to do things right. Oh, no, And totally. for clarity in terms of how someone, someone else can come along and tell, you know, like no one would ever phrase this this way, but there is, there is information I can, that will tell me how to do this correctly. There's a correct way of doing this thing that's completely got oh, no edges. Oh, my God, well, you should be gay for 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, you've never seen anything like it. 
You know, it's always what used to make me laugh about those clubs. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's supposedly based on the idea that it's all hedonism. We're all having a fantastic time and we're sort of getting our rocks off. But actually, there's a dress code. You've got to have this kind of, if you haven't got quite the right gear, you know, you've got to look the right way. If you don't look the right way, you're not going to be hot. And you're not going to be, it's just, it's an absolute nightmare. You can't just turn up. <laughs> Good God, no. <laughs> I definitely you've got to kind of you've got to nip down to the sort of whatever the shop is. And it used to be the case that you could so it's just really off off topic, but never mind. You, you used to be able to go and go down the old sort of army and navy, you know, surplus thing and get a couple of sort of, you know, fatigues and sort of make yourself look <laughs> vaguely rough and ready, which for someone sounding like me was a bit of a problem. <laughs> You know, and you get away with it. <laughs> now, I just think it's got more and more sort of, you know, it's got to be rubber this. I, I never like, I mean, I just thought rubber and leather. It's just, what do you do with it after? You have to fumigate it, <laughs> don't you? Was, anyway. They, they, they organised an evening of, of, for people that were interested in relationship anarchy. You know, we do relationships <laughs> completely differently. So they had an evening... <laughs> A workshop, you know, started, and uh, so advertising this on Facebook, and there were people replying, "Well, I can't do Tuesdays, you know." <laughs> Relationship anarchy, and but it's got to be at a time that's convenient to me. That's very I... good. Yeah, strict time limits. Yeah, But that's humans. It's just human. Whatever you look, that's humans. I mean, I'm being very unfair, but you get it in absolutely every single direction. It's the, totally like the sort that. of you know kind of. Well, yes. like, do you remember the, the absent therapist of that story, which is true about I mean, the only time I've really been to a, a really dodgy afternoon? Actually, not the only time, God. Oh my, am I trying to kid? But um, I went to one, and people were in various sort of states of undress, and it was all a bit, sort <laughs> of a bit like the train, to be honest. A bit sort of, you know, hideous. And I actually met my boyfriend there. <laughs> <laughs> then went out for three and a half years. Anyway. But what was interesting was that in the midst of this apparent sort of, you know, hedonism, there was this buffet that they served. <laughs> um, and it was incredible, you know, and it was, everyone had sort of knife and fork. And, you know, don't, don't, here's a serviette, don't drop it on the, don't drop any of the food on the floor. <laughs> and to which I wanted to say, have you seen what else is on the floor? <laughs> just, we've moved rather a long way from music, but there we are. Beautiful. I think on that. I think on that highly diverting note. The only other thing I'd say that really struck me is when I really liked the kind of reframing of the situation because it starts with a dying lady, and the doctor telling the peasant off, and I was surprised then when the peasant did the right thing. Yes. Yeah. And then I was surprised when it sort of became a game with him and the lady. Yeah, and yeah. and then it sort of became this extremely funny ending. And so it's a, it was an interesting, I, the kind of, the, the sleight of hand for moving the, apparently without changing tone at all. Well, because I think, I think there might be a reason for that. Because actually I think it's, it's a pretty, it's psychologically a very astute story. Mm. Because what it's really saying is that the nervousness around money and the fear of mortality are very close together. Yeah. And that, I think, is absolutely true. Yeah. You know, the worry about money, almost regardless of your objective circumstances, I mean, some people, I don't know you've seen on the Channel 4 dispatches things, some people in the country at the moment have nothing. Yeah. And their worry is palpably real. Mm. And it is, is a mortal fear. Yeah. How are they going to survive on food banks that are oversubscribed and closing? But at the same time, people who don't have that to worry about, apparently, still worry enormously mm. about money. 
and it is actually related to the same repertoire of mortal fears. Mm. What will become of me? Yeah, yeah, and and what can I control? What can I? Yeah. Where can I focus this? I, you know, I can't do anything about death. So I, th- I think, I think the comedy and the and yeah. the, the subjectives of horror of the situation and the fear. It's it, he's saying these things are intimately bound together, and mm. the the peasants kind of fury and anxiety about the money and Mother Rapid's desire to win is about their battle with death. Yeah. You know? You can worry about this much more easily and productively than yes. you can worry about actual exactly. death. Sort yeah. of yeah. It's although I'm not sure sure it's even a displaced thing. I think it's the same worry. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's great. All these stories are so fantastic. And they're so different. Uh the most famous one is um Boule de Suif, which is about this amply proportioned but very generous it's an incredibly moving story. Generous Rouen prostitute going north on the on on a, the the post chase on the, on the carriage and and how she treats her fellow passengers well and they turn on her. That's also about mortal fears and about mm. escaping a situation. Yeah, about who is expendable in terms of class and respectability. Yes, and, and how class yeah. and respectability actually have nothing to do with each other. Yes. Really. So he he's the tops. Maybe we should do another story by him. Well, maybe because I was reading a paper um, that made me think of uh, the neuromantics, uh, showing that finding people unattractive is one of the biggest factors that influences people's behaviour. So unattractive people, people are much more likely men and women are much more likely to consider behaviour sexual harassment if someone unattractive they perceive yeah. as unattractive is doing it well, unattractive people are less likely to receive good care in hospital it's quite interesting so maybe we could um, uh, um, to sort of unpack that a bit maybe we could find a story to well that's very interesting because the builder sweep Sounds... she actually she thinks she's both Yeah, she is attractive because she's available and in fact she gives herself to someone and then because she's done it they can dismiss her yep yep so, yeah. Well, maybe, you maybe we'll have a think about that, but I'll dig out a paper on that. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. It's been a blast. And we will see you next time on The Neuromantics. Thanks, too, to the Royal Society of Literature for their continued sponsorship of this endeavour. Goodbye. Bye-bye.